Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. I invite you to hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Acts, chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. Acts, chapter 13, verses 44 to 52, says this. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Friends, it's the word of the Lord. Say thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have continually over the 50 years of this church raised up leaders, raised up pastors, raised up elders, raised up deacons to help steward, to help, help shepherd this flock, your people that you've gathered here at this particular place. Lord, we do continue to pray over the six guys who are, or the five guys who are standing up here, but the six who have stepped into leadership for the next three years. We pray over them, over their families. We pray, Lord, that they would be led by you, that they would understand the opportunity, the responsibility, the weight, the honor that it is to be able to serve here at this place and to serve your people, to serve the church. Lord, as we continue to, to dive into the faithful testimony of your work in and through the life of your Apostle Paul, Lord, as we look at the way that the message of the gospel is received, the way that masses of people responded to it and have been responding to it ever since, Lord, let us be floored by the work of you here in the world. Allow us to be mindful of your presence here amongst us and allow us to see just how much you, how many obstacles have been in the way of the church for these last 2,000 years and yet to see its growth continue around the world to the hundreds of millions into the billions of people who confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We stand in awe. We stand in awe of your work and we stand in awe of your faithfulness to reach us, to join us, and to walk with us. As we, can, as we dive into your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds to what you might have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, it is a joy to be up here with you all. We are in the fourth week of our sermon series that is looking at the life of the Apostle Paul. 
This is, in all likelihood, the most famous, the most well-known, the most impactful missionary in the history of the church. And we've been exploring how God has taken him, taken his life, taken his skills, taken his abilities, taken his background, flipped it 180 degrees, going from persecutor of the church to preacher of the gospel. We've looked at what it means to become a convert to Christianity, what life looks like after that conversion experience. And today, and next week as well, we're going to look at a unique dynamic that presents itself in the book of Acts in the earliest recordings of the church. We're going to look at the relationship between Jews Gentiles, which is everybody who's not a Jew, and the earliest Christians. Jesus was a Jew. Paul was a Jew. Peter, the Apostle Peter, who makes himself known in the book of Acts over and over, is a significant leader in the earliest church, one of the twelve disciples of Jesus himself. He was a Jew. So, for all those who were Jews, for all those who weren't Jews, who were Gentiles, who were curious, who were interested in the Christian faith. What did this mean? What did it mean to become a Christian? Who was offered a seat at the table? If you weren't a Jew, did that mean you had to become one first in order to become then a Christian? This was an enormous discussion, an enormous debate that takes place in the earliest church, and we're going to explore it a little bit. And we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of it a little more next week. But today, we're going to see some of the beginnings of uh, the Apostle Paul getting into debates, into fights with the Jewish people, with the Jewish elites. But we're going to see in particular today uh, something that isn't based around theological belief, something that isn't based around doctrine. We're going to see... An argument, we're going to see a disagreement, we're going to see even persecution and rejection at the response of the people to the gospel. The response of the people to the gospel, okay? I know all that sounds a little convoluted, we're going to break it down more and more this morning, but all of this is going to point us to one particular thing that was just as prevalent then as it is today. Something that sits in all of our hearts, something that is dangerous. Something that like a virus seems to spread amongst us and that thing is pride. What role does pride play in our relationship to the gospel and the relationship of the earliest believers to the gospel. Let's figure out what that is. But first, background. Okay, so we were in chapter 9 last week. We're in chapter 13 this week. The book of Acts is like a good John Grisham novel. It's a page turner. I know you all believe that already. You're going to believe it even more as we dive in more and more to this incredible book, this history of the earliest church. All right, so last week we left Paul after he had riled up a group of Jews again who tried to kill him again. 
We're seeing a theme. He does this over and over throughout the book of Acts. A group of the earliest Christians come to his rescue again, and we can imagine them whispering to each other, hey, this guy needs to cool off a little bit, okay? We can't keep rescuing him from fights at the bar, essentially, right? He needs to cool off a little bit, so they send him to his hometown of Tarsus, all right? So, Is it going to work? Oh my goodness. Oh, I thought it was. It doesn't work on the screens because they're LEDs. Shoot. Okay. It works, but not on the screens. That's okay. So we're going to do a little kind of contextualization just for you guys to know where all of this is happening. The book of Acts is naming this city, then this city, then that city, then this region, then all these places. It's helpful to actually have an idea of where we are. The point, the, the, the thing would have been really helpful, the laser pointer. Alright, so look at the northeast corner of Africa, Egypt, right? And then you guys see Turkey, that green kind of blob there. So in between Egypt and Turkey on the east is this tiny little nation of Israel. We can go to the next slide. Okay, so this is the ancient Near East. Okay, you see that island kind of, uh, Right, I don't know, closest to the land that's in this opening this peninsula. So that's Cyprus. Just directly to the east of that is Israel. Next slide. So this is a very helpful map that I found in a biography that I've been reading on the life of Paul that shows a little bit of his movement. Okay? So he goes from Jerusalem, which is down here, and the earliest Christians say this guy needs to go to his hometown of Tarsus, and cool off. We all see where Tarsus is. It's right. It's north of Jerusalem. It's at like the 12 o'clock of Jerusalem. Okay? So they send him to Tarsus, and we can leave that up. And the church is flourishing. The church is booming in this entire region. Okay? Things are going extremely well. More and more people are coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We don't hear from Paul again for a little while. We get introduced again to the story of the Apostle Peter. This is the same Peter as one of the 12 first disciples of Jesus himself. Peter is, is traveling around, healing the sick, bringing the dead back to life. He's making friends with Roman officials. Things are going well. He gets a really important vision from God himself about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles that we're going to get into a little more next week. All this is going on. And if you remember, when Pastor Steve kicked off this series several weeks ago, there was a guy named Stephen who was killed. He was stoned to death, okay? Literally, people threw stones at him until he died. This is when we were introduced to Paul. It says this creepy little verse, and Paul approved of their killing him, right? So, it turns out that that death of, uh, of, um, of Stephen, Stephen's death ends up being this catalyst for the church. So, instead of making the church afraid, Church goes wild. The gospel is spreading all over the place in places like Cyprus, which is this island right here in the middle, um, to uh, Antioch, which is kind of on the northeast corner there of the map. And all of this news, particularly about the success of the church in Antioch, makes its way all the way down to Jerusalem. Okay, 
In Jerusalem, a Christian named Barnabas, this is the same Barnabas who had helped Paul after he had been blinded, if you remember. Barnabas uh, is sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to check out what's going on, what God is doing. He's amazed. He's floored by the Lord. I wrote that down in my sermon, realized that it rhymed, so we're going to talk about it. He's floored by the Lord in Antioch, and he says, hey, Paul needs to see this. He needs to see what God is doing in this city of Antioch. So Barnabas goes from Antioch, travels to Tarsus, grabs Paul, brings him back to Antioch, and they live there as missionaries, co-laborers in the gospel. They live in Antioch for an entire year, okay? And fun fact, it's during that time that the followers of Jesus are first called Christians, Little Christ. It is during that little time when Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch that the followers of Jesus are first called Christians. Okay, we go back to Peter. He's arrested. He's sent to prison. Miraculously escapes. King Herod, who had sent him there in the first place, God literally kills. Uh, he just dies because King Herod believed himself to be God. God says, no, that's me. Ends his life right then and there. We go back. I'm telling you, John Grisham novel. Read it. It's it's a page turner. You'll finish it on a plane. It's excellent. Paul and Barnabas wrap up their time in Antioch. They return to Jerusalem. They are sent back out. They arrive on the island of Cyprus in Salamis. They teach in a synagogue there. Then they go to Paphos, which is on the west coast there of Cyprus. They move up to Perga and then finally up to if the top. Uh, like the northwest corner, Pisidian Antioch, which is where we find them in our passage today. So you can see all of this travel that involves Paul's life. They're spreading the gospel from city to city. Every single time they arrive in a city, they're teaching in the synagogues there. This is their travel. This is what their life looks like. Okay? Take the map down. Thank you, John. All right, so... We meet Paul and Barnabas in this city of Pisidian Antioch. They're teaching in a synagogue, um, and everything goes well. Paul is sharing the story of the Jewish people and Jesus. Okay, Paul is sharing the story of the Jewish people and Jesus. God, Eden, Egypt, slavery, wilderness... Returning to the promised land, prophets, judges, King Saul, King David, who is uh, an ancestor of Jesus himself, more prophets, exile, return to the promised land. John the Baptist is telling this story. John the Baptist proclaiming that the light is coming into the world soon, right? Jesus himself Jesus' arrest, Jesus' trial, Jesus' sentence, Jesus' place on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' burial, Jesus' resurrection. Paul is telling this story everywhere he goes. Started in Eden, arrives at the empty tomb, okay? He is telling this story as one cohesive, one complete story to every town, every synagogue that he and Barnabas are traveling to. They wrap up in this particular instance, okay? They wrap up as they're leaving. You can imagine people are going to coffee time, essentially, right? 
They're having good conversations with all the people that they've just been teaching. The Jews, the Gentiles, everybody who wanted to come hear what they had to say. Things are looking good. Things are looking positive, amicable. They're having good conversations, good discussions. The debates aren't too hot. We're not getting violent. Things are going well. Things are going so well that they invite Paul and Barnabas to return to the same synagogue the next week on the Sabbath. Great. Things are going great. Paul and Barnabas, the next week on the Sabbath, go to this synagogue, keep teaching, keep trying to connect this story between the Old and New Testaments as we now understand it. But this time, this time something is different. Luke writes in uh, the book of Acts, this is where we pick up. On the next Sabbath, so they're coming back. They had been invited to read, to teach again in the synagogue. On the next Sabbath, in verse 44, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Okay? Missionaries show up in Tulare. TCC hears it the first week, invites the missionaries back the following week. 60,000 people almost want to show up to hear what they have to say. All right. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Out of nowhere, remember, the Jews were there the previous week, had invited them back to the synagogue. Just like that, they begin to antagonize Paul and Barnabas, begin to talk trash about Paul and Barnabas, begin to gossip about Paul and Barnabas. Something has changed. Something has changed. What is that something? Well, Paul and Barnabas, as good missionaries, say, well, we're optimistic, we're hopeful, but we're also very, very practical. As Pastor Steve loves to say, go with the willing. Paul and Barnabas say, you guys aren't willing, the Jews aren't willing, the Gentiles are, we're going to roll with them, right? It says, uh, they respond to the Jews, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, Uh, excuse me. They respond, we had to speak the word of God to you first since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles, okay? Because this story, remember, this story of Eden leading all the way to the empty tomb begins with the Jewish people, begins with the Israelites. Paul and Barnabas are going to them first. They're unwilling to hear the story. We're going to go with the people who are willing to read the story or to hear the story, okay? The Gentiles are thrilled. The word of the Lord spreads through the region. Things are going well. The Jews pull some political strings in the city. They get uh, the men and women who have influence, who have clout, to kick Paul and Barnabas out of the city, expel them from uh, Pisidian Antioch, and it ends, our passage ends, so they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is all a little par for the course, actually. Part of why Paul and Barnabas move around so much is because they get kicked out of places a lot. 
But they often get kicked out of places because of what they're actually saying. They usually get kicked out of places because they're talking about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, being crucified. Nails in his hands, nails in his feet, hammered to a tree. Most often they get kicked out of places because the Jews, the people hearing this say, that's absurd. You're wrong. But notice that that isn't what happens here. They tell that whole story. And they get invited back to tell it again. There's no biblical, there might be some good discussion, but there's no hatred. There's no disputes over theology so great as to, uh, sign, uh, as to enlist, uh, illicit persecution and expulsion from this city. Paul and Barnabas are rejected, they're persecuted, and they're expelled from this city as a result of something that's actually far more sinister. It's far darker. Something that lives in each and every one of our hearts just as much today as it did 2,000 years ago. See, Paul and Barnabas have something compelling to say, and the whole city wants to hear it. And the Jews, this privileged group, clearly, they've got pull with the politicians, with the wealthy. They've got pull. They're jealous. They're jealous that the almost the entire city wants to come out to hear what Paul and Barnabas has to have to say. They see red, right? Their ears are closed, their hearts are hardened, and they run Paul and Barnabas out of the city because they are jealous. They're jealous. Their message in their minds must not be as good as what these two strangers have to say. What gives? We've been here our whole lives. We've never gotten most of the city to come out to hear us talk. We need to get these guys out of here. They're envious. What's a close sibling, a close cousin of envy, of jealousy? Pride. They're proud. I wonder... This morning, as we're all here together, I wonder what your relationship with pride is. Pride is tricky. I've heard it said that pride is at the root of all other sins. Pride is what the snake used in the Garden of Eden to tempt and to convince the first man, the first woman, to disobey the only command that God had given them. Pride tells us that we have no need of saving because we have nothing to be saved from. Pride tells us that we have no need to be saved because there is nothing in us, nothing in our lives that we need to be saved from. Pride tells us that we need to run as far away as possible from any self-acknowledgement that we might be flawed, that we might be broken, that we might have defects in our character, 
and our personality. Pride tells us that if we are to ever acknowledge that we might need help over any area of our life, then the entire house of cards of our personality, of our identity that we have slowly, gently, carefully tried to build up will all come crashing down. Have you ever wondered, I hope you have, have you ever wondered why so many women and men come to saving faith, saving trust in Jesus when they're in prison, when they're in rehab, when they go through a 12-step program, walking through addiction, walking through whatever things had controlled their life for so long? you ever wondered why that happens? Blue-collar people, white-collar people, young people, old people, married people, divorced people, widows, widowers, the rich, the poor, the middle class, everywhere in between. You ever wondered why that is? You ever wondered why so many people returned to church after World War II? You ever thought about why so many people, after watching the culmination of the technological advancements of the 20th century, result in the extermination of millions and millions of people flocked to places of worship after World War II ended? When we are at the end of our rope, when we are exhausted, when we are done trying, when we have fallen on our knees and can't figure out what the next step is forward, no matter what we've achieved in our lives, no matter how wonderful everything might look from the exterior looking in, when we are at the end of our rope, when we come face to face with evil, when we come face to face with the evil that we ourselves are capable of that we never wanted to admit we were capable of at all, our pride comes crumbling down. And in its place comes the only antidote for it, humility. In 1967, Johnny Cash was in trouble. Famous country music artist. I wonder what he would think of country music today. Uh, He had fame. He had money. He had success. He had everything going for him. Famous. All the while, he's dealing with addictions to amphetamines and barbiturates. Popping pills several times a day and by the handful. In his autobiography, he wrote, I was canceling shows and recording dates, and when I did manage to show up, I couldn't sing because my throat was too dried out from the pills. I was in and out of jails, hospitals, car wrecks. I was a walking vision of death, and that's exactly how I felt. In October of that year, 1967, he decided to end his own life. There are these caves that he knew about along the Tennessee River that he had explored as a child. Deep, deep caves that you could walk in for hours. 
And if you walk deep enough, you might get lost. People had died. And he hoped to join them. And so one day, he parks his Jeep on the road, walks down to these caves, and he begins to crawl deeper and deeper into these caves for three hours. He's in pitch black. And he lay down in the darkness in the sand. Johnny Cash, throughout his life, even at this point, he had had an on-again, off-again relationship with Christianity. He had had a relationship with God. He felt like he had drawn too far away from God for God to be able to redeem his story, to be able to help him. But as he lay there, he writes this in his autobiography, a thought crossed his mind. He realized that he had left God, but God hadn't left him. He wrote, words are on the screen, there in Nick Jack Cave, I became conscious of a very clear, simple idea. I was not in charge of my own destiny. I was not in charge of my own death. I was going to die at God's time, not my own. Amazingly, he um, was actually found in these caves by blanking on who became his wife, but his wife and his mother came and found him, and he was saved, literally and figuratively. He had reached the end of his rope. He had fallen on his knees in an act of humility. And God met him right there, right then. It's the very same humility that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who we, whose life, whose testimony, whose leadership of the civil rights movement we celebrated this past week led the civil rights movement with. Not violence, but peace. Not strength, but weakness, not pride, but humility. See, the gospel requires humility because the gospel was achieved through humility. God the Father sending His Son as a baby into the world who lived a life that ended in a death, stripped naked, bleeding, nailed to that cross. Given a sponge on a stick full of vinegar, the very same sponge that the Romans used as toilet paper. Jesus Christ achieved the ultimate victory, not through strength, not through power, not through pride, certainly, but through weakness, through surrender, through humility. A humility that the Jews in this story we're not able to muster up. A humility that is necessary to be able to understand the gospel and to be changed by it. If you do not believe that you need saving, why would you ever put your trust in a Savior? Pride is an obstacle between us, all of us, and freedom. Pride is an obstacle between all of us and forgiveness. Pride is an obstacle between all of us and salvation. So TCC, my invitation to you this week is to pray about, to explore what is the pride that holds you captive. What is the pride in your own heart, in your own life, you are unwilling to surrender 
at the foot of the cross? What is the humility you are unwilling to step into because of how others you think others might think of you? How your family might perceive you? How your social circle might reject you? What pride, what defensiveness, what envy is holding you back from freedom? The gospel requires humility because it was achieved through humility. What's holding you back from the gospel? Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for, again, we thank you every single week for your work in the life of Paul. This man who was a violent persecutor of Christians, delighted in their death, to a man whose life was turned completely 180 degrees to be used by you. To be used by you, Lord to carry out your good purposes, to carry out your good will. And we see in his travels that there are times where he's rejected because of what he has to say, but in this instance, he's rejected because the gospel is so compelling. The gospel is so compelling that almost an entire city wants to come out to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say about it. And what kicks them out of this city isn't theological difference, it isn't doctrinal disputes, it isn't biblical disagreements, it's pride. The gospel does not have space within it for pride. The gospel does not have space within it for arms crossed. I'm doing me, I'm living my life, I'm going to figure it out on my own, I don't need anybody, yes you do. Yes, you do. We all do. Allow us, Lord, here and now, and in the week to come, to be mindful of the pride in our own hearts that's keeping us held captive, keeping us in a place of fear. So afraid to let go of it. So afraid to lay it down at the foot of the cross. So afraid to step into humility that we risk missing the joy, the freedom, the forgiveness, and the grace of salvation. Lord, allow us, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, to have our hearts examined this week, to confess to you, Lord, to a brother, to a sister, to our small groups, to our Bible studies, to whatever group we might be a part of, if we're a new believer, to confess it to a pastor, to confess it to somebody who's been kind to you. The pride that is holding us back from you. Because the gospel demands, commands, requires humility because the gospel was achieved through humility. Search us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.